Good morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, the creator of all things. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak through your word as we read it, as we talk about it, as we contemplate it, that we would worship you and glorify you and praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when I was in the fourth grade, God made two things happen in my life that set a pattern for the future that uh, I had no idea where he was taking me. Number one, my parents bought a piano, and I started piano lessons. And that's why I was hiding back there moments ago. Number two, I had a fourth grade Sunday school teacher who taught us from the book of Genesis for the entire year of fourth grade Sunday school in a way that I developed an early appreciation of what I'll call biblical creation. And it's been a a passion of mine ever since to better and better understand how God created, why he created, what he created, etc. to study his creation, understand the created order. So today, it's my privilege to talk today with you about the origin of the universe. So as I started preparing, I decided I'm going to Google it. The origin of the universe. Enter. There's a hit at the top, and then there's this people also ask section. I thought, ooh, Cliff's Notes. I might get the grand summary in a paragraph or a sentence. I'm going to read what was under the prompt, the universe or the origin of the universe summary from Google.com. The universe is believed to have originated about 15 billion years ago as a dense, hot globule of gas expanding rapidly outward. At that time, the universe contained nothing but hydrogen and a small amount of helium. There were no stars and no planets. So according to Google, who or what was present at the beginning? Hydrogen and a little bit of helium. Note also the faith element. The universe is believed. Believed, not known, not proven, not observed. Believed. By whom? A trustworthy source? We can't know because it's in the passive voice. We don't know the identity of the believers. So I decide to dig deeper. I go to the top link from the search, and I click on a link that takes me to nationalgeographic.com, an article written, I think, in 2017. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph. The best supported theory of our universe's origin centers on an event known as the Big Bang. This theory was born of the observation that other galaxies are moving away from our own at great speed in all directions, as if they had all been propelled by an ancient explosive force. So this paragraph gives us more things to contemplate. The best supported theory is what they describe their model of the origin of the universe. Well, what is a theory 
in this context, I'm not just a piano player. I'm also a scientist. That's where I spend my days. Actually, I'm an engineer. I work with scientists in the area of physical science. There are broad categories, physical science, life science, social science. In the physical sciences, we have a thing called the scientific method that we practice. You may have heard of this. I learned about it in early elementary school. The scientific method starts with a hypothesis. You postulate something, and then you create an experiment to test your hypothesis. If your hypothesis supports, or sorry, if your experiment supports your hypothesis, that's good news for your hypothesis. A few more experiments and starts to build confidence in your hypothesis. Over enough time with lots of successful experiments by lots of people, a hypothesis can graduate to a theory like Einstein's theory of general relativity. Now, there's a thing such as a super hypothesis that's super theory, and that's a law. So something that passed even more tests over time, perhaps decades or centuries, can become a law like Newton's law of universal gravitation. So why do I share this? This is a type of science that I just described that's called observational science. The best supported theory that we've just read about, the Big Bang, is not that kind of science. Why? I challenge you to do an experiment. Go create a new universe. We can't do it. We can't do repeated experiments to validate a hypothesis. So instead, we have a model. And this is a new or different, I should say, kind of science. Rather than observational science, when we make observations in the present and use those to build models or frameworks to describe something in the past, we can call that historical science. So I could go on and talk more about the Big Bang and its details, because some people say, yeah, hydrogen wasn't actually there at the very beginning. That came later. But basically, the grand summary of the Big Bang for the layperson is there was a hot globule of what became mostly hydrogen pretty early on, incomprehensibly dense, and then it was, it was packed with energy, and then suddenly it expanded at breakneck speed. So I want, to keep you, I want you to keep two things in mind about what I just explained. First of all, with respect to, to theories or models like the Big Bang, words like believed, it's thought, we're not sure, it's still unclear, haven't figured out, are prominent in a well-written article because it's historical science, and we can't repeat an experiment and those scientists weren't there. Second, historical science is different than observational science. And when we interpret the, the, the flux of information we receive from our culture, from media, from schools, teachers, we need to filter that through an understanding of the difference between historical and observational science. Historical science takes a different method to determine truth. Now, we are believers in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we adhere to the principle that the Holy Bible is God-breathed, inspired by God. So with that in mind, let's hear what God has to say. Speaking to Job, chapter 38, verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. So what's the best source of information for historical science? 
It's an eyewitness observer. What if, what if there was an eyewitness observer to the creation of the universe? What if he wrote down his observations in a book? And what if he gave that book to his offspring who could pass it on to their offspring for generations after generation? What if that book is God's revelation to us in his holy word? With that perspective in mind, let's open that book. We have blue Bibles in the back. Feel free to go grab one if you don't have a Bible in your hand or on your mobile device. We're going to turn to the beginning. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's the text that we will focus on for the rest of this message. We're going to do this as students, journalists, other professionals have been taught for many years. We're going to use the five W's and H questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. We're going to ask those six questions of this short text, just two verses. We'll change the order to go with the flow of the passage. With each question, we're going to use the best practices of biblical interpretation. We're going to use scripture to interpret scripture. What do I mean by that? We'll look at the Hebrew words that are used in these first two verses, and we'll see how Moses and other Old Testament authors use those same Hebrew words in other contexts to help us build an understanding of those words. And we'll look at how other authors of the Old and New Testament, as well as Moses, who authored Genesis, but we'll look at how the authors of the Bible, Old and New Testament, interpret these verses to help us understand by using Scripture to interpret Scripture. What is my primary objective? Well, I want you, I want us to be better equipped to worship and glorify God. And in fact, I want to share my big message, the grand summary, if you're going to write one thing down or remember one thing, this is what I want you to remember. We should study God's special revelation, which is his creation account in scripture, and general revelation, which is what we observe in nature, to equip us to worship and glorify God. So let's begin with question one. When? The answer is clear. In the beginning. Now this may sound overly simplistic, but this statement addresses a serious question that many philosophers have struggled with over history. For millennia, it was a dilemma. Is matter eternal? Well, Aristotle could have been spared a lot of agonizing over that question if he had just opened the Bible. The universe has a beginning. It says it right there. There was nothing, and then time began. Maybe a better way to think about this is that God created time. That blows my mind away a little bit. Maybe I'm stretching it too far. Let's see what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created 
by the word of God. I'm going to stop there. Didn't say anything about time, did it? Well, actually, if you go to the Greek, the word for universe is this word in English letters in our alphabet spelled A-I-O-N. I think the word eon might be derived from it. And that same word is used elsewhere in Hebrews. In 6.5, it's translated age, the age to come. In 9.26, the end of the ages, the end of the eons, you might say. So perhaps a better way to translate this verse is that the ages were created by Christ, or the temporal space-time universe was created by Christ. So when, in the beginning, God created time? Question two, who? Who is the creator? I complained about the passive voice earlier from Google's people also ask statement. We don't have passive voice here. We have a subject, and that subject is God. Let's go back to the Hebrew. The word translated God is Elohim. Elohim is a peculiar word because it's a grammatical plural. I consulted a Bible dictionary. What is a grammatical plural? What does that mean? How can we use that? So this dictionary said, though the form is a grammatical plural, the meaning is singular, and many sources think implies a majesty or stateliness. So in other words, Elohim is a plural name with a singular meaning. Some have called it a uni-plural noun that expresses the majesty and stateliness and importance of God. Some have even gone to say, as far to say that this is a, the first hint in the Bible of a Trinitarian God. Biblical scholars will slow us down and say, nah, that's not fully revealed till the New Testament. But we are New Testament believers. Looking back on that, wow, in the beginning, God, uni-plural God. So our second question is answered. Who? Elohim, the uni-plural God. Third question, what? What did this uni-plural God do? He created. Let's just keep going with our Hebrew study. The word here is barah. I searched for the use of the word bara, and I found that in the first chapter of Genesis, it's only used three times. It turns out that if you explore the whole Old Testament, that same word is only used to speak of God creating, never of humans making something. Humans making something or forming something is always a different verb. So this is something special God created. So there's three times in Genesis 1. The first one is here at the beginning where he created, and we'll talk about what next. Um, second time on day five, he created, if you look down further in chapter one, he created living creatures of the sea and birds of the air, the flying creatures. That implies maybe there was something different about those creatures than the vegetables, the plants that were created before that. Animal life is different than vegetable or vegetarian or plant life. And we understand that implicitly. Then day six, the third creation event, man in God's image. Again, something different, suggesting man is not just an advanced animal. Man has the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. Okay, so what did he create? One view of this passage is that heavens corresponds to space and earth corresponds to matter. Let's explore that idea. 
starting with Genesis chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, which reads, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So heaven refers to the space between the upper and lower waters. And if we're not sure what those waters are, verses 14 and 17 tell us this expanse contains the stars, sun, and moon, its outer space. So space is a good substitute or synonym in this context for heaven. How about the earth? The Hebrew word for earth is also translated later on as ground, land, and country. So it certainly could represent the stuff of which the earth, this globe, is made. At a minimum, it refers to our globe, but it could also include all the stuff of which the globe is made. So heaven or heavens refers to space. The earth refers to matter. Beginning is a reference to time. So the triune God created a threefold creation. Isn't that cool? That we have a triune God who is so creative that he decided to make a creation that had three components that have to exist together. What would space be without time or matter? Take any one of those three out and the meaning is lost. We don't even understand how that could exist. Let's go one step further. Each of these elements of creation is threefold. Space has length, width, and height. Matter exists in three phases or states, gas, liquid, and solid. And time has a past, a present, and a future. So the threefold triune God created a threefold universe of threefold things. Three threes. I'm a math guy. I love that. So for those of you that can join me in worshiping God for that, amen. That is wonderful. (laughs) We worship a God of order, not disorder. And he put this thing together in such a simple but elegant way so that we can worship and praise and glorify him. He created this earth. He created the universe so that he could dwell with us. We could walk with him, fellowship with him, have communion with him so that we could praise and worship and glorify him. That was what? So how did he do it? How did God create the universe? We're going to again look ahead in chapter one. If you have chapter one open, I'm going to shout out some verses. I'm going to read the opening phrase in each of these verses. Verse three, and God said. Verse six, and God said. Verse nine, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. You can read along with me. And verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, the curveball. Then God said. But eight times, God said. He said, and things existed. So a key principle for studying scripture, I learned this when I learned how to do an inductive study of the Bible. Look for repeated words and phrases because maybe the author intends those things to be noticed. What does God do here in inspiring this to be written down eight times? And God said, how did God create? He spoke and the elements of creation appeared. He spoke and creatures were formed. If you're thinking, well, maybe this is just a poetic approach. It's not really, there's more to it than that. Let's go to Psalm 33, six. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Verse 9, three verses later, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. That's still Psalms, maybe poetry. Let's go to some other writing. Let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews 1, 2. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. You might think, oh, see, he didn't speak. He did this through his son. That's different. Ah, no. John 1, first three verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So when, and God said his words, the word, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Repeating Hebrews 11.3, I read it earlier, but let's finish it. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Two more things I want to add based on that verse. By faith, historical science, I've already pointed out, we have to have faith in something or someone. And scripture teaches us, by faith, we understand how God created by the word. Secondly, before he spoke, nothing existed. This verse says he created, he made things not out of those things that are visible. Therefore, he made it out of things that are not visible or out of nothing God created. He's an amazing God. We can't comprehend that power to create from nothing. He did it by his word. Where? Let's move to verse two to answer our next question, where? Verse two points us to a place. Let's read that passage. The earth was without form and void and darkness was, where? Over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering, where? Over the face of the waters. Before we get to the place, the where, there are a couple other things I want to address. First of all, we see the phrase spirit of God. The Hebrew there, we've already talked about Elohim, that's translated God. There's a word before that, ruach, that could be translated wind or breath. And Elohim can be translated something like gods with a small g. So this could be a supernatural wind. However, every time in the Old Testament, in most, if not all, modern English translations. Every time those pair of words are translated in the Old Testament, they're translated spirit of God. Again, scholars cautioned against reading the Trinity into the first chapter of the first two verses of Genesis. But we as New Testament believers can look at this and say, wow, there's the third person of the Trinity, the spirit of God hovering over the waters. So now what about this hovering thing? This word is only used three times in the Old Testament, once here. The most useful other time is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Here we find this, a description of an eagle. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, hovers, that's the Hebrew word, over its young, the Lord alone guided him. So a Bible dictionary that I found says you could translate this word to be tremble, shake, or quiver with a quick back and forth motion, maybe like wings flapping. So that seems reasonable. So maybe the spirit of God, as it's hovering over the face of the waters, was actively overseeing this creation event. And while he was doing that, he was providing some energy to keep this thing moving along. 
He's a God of order, not disorder. And things started formless and void. Now let's make some things happen. So now let's talk about the place, the waters. This, this place, the waters, had a surface. And these waters seem to be a key, a key component of the initial matter at the beginning of time. Remember the Big Bang talk with hydrogen? We've got waters here. So I wondered, could these waters be the same as that hot ball of hydrogen that existed near the beginning of time, according to the Big Bang theory? So I decided I'm going to follow this Hebrew word. So the word for Mayim, or waters is Mayim. So I tracked where Mayim is used throughout the Old Testament. Some examples. Genesis 1.10 describes the Mayim swarming with living creatures. 120, oh, that was 120. 110 describes the Mayim being gathered together to form the seas. 7.6 in Genesis describes a flood of Mayim coming upon the earth. Exodus 2.10 describes the infant Moses being drawn out of the Mayim. 14.21 of Exodus refers to the Israelites with Moses passing through the Red Sea, unscathed and not drowned by the Mayim that were held up on either side of them. All of these references sound pretty clear. The Mayim, the waters, the deep of Genesis 1-2, H2O. So there was a lot of H2O present at the beginning. This is confirmed by 2 Peter 3, 3-5, which I'll read. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter stops speaking in a quote, and now Peter makes a statement about these people, these scoffers. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Water. Let's go further with this water idea. Let's look at the biblical theology of water. The Hebrew people were kind of afraid of big masses of water, seas and oceans. That represented a place of chaos and death. Sounds kind of like formless and void, right? We've got this thing that sounds dangerous. Think about how God uses water as an image for us through actual historical events of the Bible. I described several of them, the infant Moses rescued from the Nile, or think of Noah and his family rescued from the floodwaters. Uh, Moses and Israel passing through the Red Sea, Jonah being thrown overboard into the waters, the Mayim, and then God rescued him with a big fish. In all of these cases, people were rescued from a desperate situation and taken to a new life, a new start, not unlike the beginning that is signaled when a Believer is raised from the waters of baptism. Wow, waters. And God created out of waters, just like he creates new life in believers out of waters. Okay, in summary, the what of creation included time, space, and matter. The where was in the presence of an active God. The energizing spirit was hovering over the face of the waters Overseeing this, it wasn't finished yet, but he was present and he was active. This was not a random chance event. God didn't just create the laws of physics and walk away. He was actively creating. This was not an unplanned and uncontrolled explosion. 
So we now have a limited sense of the physical environment at the birth of the universe. Now let's talk about our final question, an important question. Why? Why did Elohim create? We don't find an answer to that question in these verses, but the Bible has the answer in many places. I'll read one of those. Revelation 4, 11. This is John's vision of 24 elders gathered around the throne in heaven, and they're proclaiming these words to God. They are saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Think back just a few weeks ago to Ephesians 1. We had a series of sermons where Dave revealed to us that in the opening section of Ephesians 1, there's actually a Trinitarian structure. And in each of those three sections, there was that phrase, a couple variants, but basically the phrase that gave the reason for what Paul was saying and the reason for our existence to the praise of his glory. That is why we exist. God created so that we would worship and praise and glorify him. And because he created, he is worthy of that worship. So let's review our six-point outline, twice your typical sermon. (laughs) When, in the beginning... Who, the uni-plural God, Elohim, what? He created space and matter and time. How did he do that? By his word. Where was he as this was all going on? He was there. He was over the waters. Why? This is the big picture, the big point, the big idea. So that we might praise and worship and glorify him. So I'm going to close with three applications The first one is what I just said. We should study God's special revelation, which is the written account of creation in his word, and general revelation, the natural world, nature, to equip us to worship and glorify God. This is modeled for us by the psalmist in 136.5. Give thanks to him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. My second point, my second application is we need to beware of human pride in human knowledge. I'm not saying the Big Bang is completely wrong. There are some observations that are the basis for it, but many would argue that the whole thing should be thrown out and started over with because they keep tacking on different pieces. It's like a a house that was built and then added to and then added to and then added to and pretty soon it's just a mess. You need to just start over. Um, In our culture, in our society, in modern times, we've cracked the genetic code. We have computers more powerful in our pocket, computers more powerful than the computers that took man to the moon. We put man on the moon. We, mm, secular, materialist, naturalistic thinking, we are self-sufficient, we mankind know everything. Beware of that pride. Beware of the pride of science and scientists. Consider that instead, we as believers can rely on the word of God, that word with a capital W. Everything requires, with respect to historical science, 
Every system of belief requires that, belief in something. Even origins of the universe require belief in something or someone. So don't dethrone God and put yourself or scientists on the throne. Last, in love, talk about these things. Talk about them with your children. Why? So that they might be equipped to praise and worship and glorify God. And you know what? When we teach them, we learn and we remind ourselves as well. In fact, this principle of teaching the next generation, Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, all the time, we need to talk about the truth of God's word, including the stuff at the very beginning about the creation. Also, talk about this to individuals, fellow believers, as well as non-believing skeptics alike. For the fellow believers, caution them against following passively the path established by our secular culture and just accepting what the media and the books tell us. Help them recognize that any system of origins requires faith in something or someone. Teach them that historical science is not the same as observational science. Just because we've cracked the genetic code doesn't mean we know that the universe started with a hot globule of hydrogen densely packed. In fact, I think having faith in that word with a capital W is, that's a much more trustworthy source than that hot globule of dense material formed by an unknown source and then suddenly expanding, propelled by an unknown source at breakneck speed. We know the source. We need to teach one another these things so that we will be able and more equipped to worship and glorify God. Paul used this approach. In closing, I'm going to read from Acts 17. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. I read the unknown source. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then here's a why that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. We serve an amazing God. Let's worship him. Please bow your heads with me. I'm going to close by paraphrasing Psalm 136, which proclaims worship to God because of his creation. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good, for your steadfast love endures forever. 
We give thanks to the God of gods for your steadfast love endures forever. We give thanks to the Lord of lords for your steadfast love endures forever. To you who alone do great wonders for your steadfast love endures forever. To you who by understanding made the heavens for your steadfast love endures forever. To you who spread out the earth above the waters for your steadfast love endures forever. To you who made the great lights for your steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for your steadfast love endures forever. The the moon and stars to rule over the night for your steadfast love endures forever. Amen.